that Ben has a birthday coming. I unfortunately do age just like everybody else. It didn't didn't your deal with the chaos powers like give you an immunity to that or something? I thought you were supposed to be like an ageless being who haunted mankind. I was really hoping that was the deal, but I didn't read the fine print, oh, just like most no. demonic contracts. Yeah, that that's it's always the fine print that gets you, huh? Yeah, I, uh, unfortunately, you know, out of, out of the one of the few things in life that actually scare real life Ben, mm-hmm. aging is, uh, aging is one of them. Uh, you know, there's not a whole lot that I don't take by the horns, but getting, getting older is not something I truly enjoy, but I do enjoy the experience and I'm very grateful to be where I'm at in my life, so. Yeah. What, what we're all missing is the elephant in the room. Is he now old man Ben from Star Wars? He's not old Ben, no. Uh, because, first of all, he's probably never seen a Tuscan Raider in his life, am I right? Yeah, I, we don't, even though I live in Las Vegas, I, I've no sand people. Okay, would you give the most deadly weapon in the galaxy to a 17 year old? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe he is old Ben then. Now we're getting some conflicting messages here. Um,. Okay, would you lie to him about the most dangerous weapon in the in the galaxy? I mean, if it was to a means to an end. All right, this, I think I think we have that. That's two two against one. This is old Ben right here. We had to replace old man Josh with somebody. Well, the the youngling the youngling killer nine thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Not as not as fancy as the Youngling Killer thirteen thousand, but uh, you know a significant upgrade from the Youngling Killer five thousand. Well, while we're on this tangent, you know, I, I do have to reference the fact that Ray she feel she picks up a dagger that has like killed two people, and it's like, oh, this thing has done some evil things, but mm-hmm. while wielding that lightsaber, yeah, yeah. yeah that <laughs> that lightsaber has seen some shit. So that 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 just blows my mind, but that's that's a different universe. Let's we can we can be, come back to the more grip, the actually less grim dark, uh, you know, I don't chapter know. of. I don't know. Like, <laughs> in in forty k genocides don't even register, but they don't even reference the fact that children are killed. So. Yeah, it's exactly that's my point. So I have to say, Ben. Uh huh. Here's a piece of advice. You shouldn't be celebrating your birthday. You're celebrating leveling up. Mm-hmm. Ah, mm-hmm. yes. Hmm. Ding, as they say. <laughs> yes. You're leveling up, Ben. And that's what our podcast is all about, is leveling you up. Is this just the guild chat? I mean, <laughs> essentially, yeah. Yeah. It, all right. I mean, if you think about it, in, in our world, all chats are guild chats. Whoa. Yeah, right? Mind blown. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and uh, take that directly to the main topic of the episode, uh, which is being a mid-table player. Also known as me. Also known as most people. It, so let's, let's go ahead and preface this with a, a really big thing. When we say mid-table player, we don't mean that as an insulting term... Or as a to, to hold negative connotations or anything, because by definition, most players are mid-table players. Mid-table is average performance. Yeah, um, and most people are average. It's just the numerical reality of any game. So, when we're talking about mid-table players here, we're not trying to make this sound as though it's a bad thing. It's like, oh, you're not good enough to, to get real advice. Um, the reason we wanted to do this is because the, the vast majority of our audience, the vast majority of players, the vast majority of people interested in competitive play, especially that last one, are mid-table players. Uh, and so, there are a lot of... 
things that can be aimed specifically at that kind of player, um, there's advice unique to them. Also, if you are a good player, you're going to have to play through the mid-tables to get to the top tables. Yes, uh, and if you want to become a good player, you are probably starting at the mid-tables and trying to work your way up um, in a more conceptual sense, rather than the more literal one that Shay was using. Um, so there's a lot to approach and address just talking about the mid-tables. Um, in fact, why don't, why don't we just go ahead and sort of, like, define, like, what are the mid-tables? What, what does that even mean? So, like, the mid-tables, in my opinion, are tables are your, you know, your, your average table. It's, a, it's not your top tables, you know, usually your top eight tables or so, or top four tables, depending on the size of your GT. And I want to express these, we're talking about GT-level events here, not, not RTT, but, like, your six-round or five-round event, yeah. uh, multi-day yeah. setup. RTTs are just a little too small to really develop a real mid-table situation. Mm-hmm. By the time you've gotten to the mid-tables, the tournament is over. <laughs> yeah, literally. And to express what you guys said earlier, it, any any player can end up here. Um, good players, bad players. Most people can end up at the mid-table if they're having an, an average performance or a below-average performance or above-average performance based on the person. Um, you can run into all sorts of people, so it's going to be kind of a wild experience. Yeah, the other thing about mid-tables is because they have the largest population of players, you have the largest population of variants. They're not predictable. Extremely so. Um, you are likely to see all kinds of different people and lists at the mid-tables, which is something we will talk a little bit about in just a second here. Um, but really, like, in any time you are looking at a roughly even win-loss record, uh, maybe plus or minus one, that's what I would call a mid-table. If you're, if you're two and four, you're at the mid-tables. Uh, if, if you're two and two, you're at the mid-tables. If you're, if you're three and one, yeah, you're not quite the mid-tables, but you're pretty close. If you lose one more game, you're probably back down there. Um... But if you're undefeated or only have one loss, you're probably not at the mid-tables. Um, and by the same token, if you don't have any wins, you're definitely not at the mid-tables. Um, I will also point out that, mm -hmm. that it's a totally fine place to be. <laughs> don't, don't find it scary. Again, this is where most people play the game most of the time. Um, there, there is absolutely no shame in being here. It may not be where you want to be, and we'll talk about that when we're talking about our sort of goals and that sort of things later on. Um, but being mid-tables means you are doing average, which may not sound great, but it means you're better than 50% of the people. And there are tiers within the mid-tables. There's upper mid-tables, sure. <laughs> which are people who are going more like 4-2 as opposed to 3-3. Three, three. Um, so you can move around in that band and still be improving and see improvement. So don't, don't worry Absolutely. about being labeled there. Right. Um, we are using, we're painting with very broad strokes here. Um, we're not going to worry too much about the differentiation between 2-4 and 4-2, but those are very different records at the end of a tournament. And there's, there's no, there's no shame in being here either. I mean, at the end of the day, you go to LVO, um, a lot of the top 100 players in the world end up mid-table. Yes, um, you absolutely should remember that there's a good chance there may be some very good players attending the, the tournament that you have gone to. And the fact that you have not beaten, you know, the number one orc player in the ITC because he plays at your shop, or that you have not beaten, you know, the number 13 player in the nation... Um, that that should not be surprising. Like, again, this is where most people are. And even if you come anywhere near beating those players, that's good. Like, that, that can be improvements. So, let's talk a little bit about um, 
the types of opponents you're going to see at the mid-tables. Because there are going to be, I would say, three to four major types of people uh, at the mid-tables with their, their different sorts of lists that they are bringing. With the quirks. Y- yeah, yeah. So, I think the most immediately recognizable one is going to be the good player who is kind of playing down. Um, This is someone who may have won a tournament or gone undefeated at your local events before, uh, but for whatever reason has got like a 2-2 or 3-2 record. Um, Possibly because they didn't bring an optimized list, or possibly just because they're having a run of bad luck or a bad day. Um, yeah, it, there's numerous factors why a good player may might not be doing as well as normal. It might be they played all the other good players at the tournament, and now they're at the mid-tables. <laughs> that will absolutely happen. You get matched up against the number one and the number two players the first two rounds of the tournament, and you will suddenly find yourself a lot lower in the brackets. Yes. And my average journey to the mid-table typically involves, oh, I'll win one round, win two rounds, and then the next two rounds I lose. Um, yeah. And then suddenly I'm deep in the mid-tables. So it's a, it's it's quite the journey. It's not a fun journey. But it can it, you be. get to play some really good players in the process. So you get some great games. <laughs> well, it definitely can be fun. Because one of the types of players that, I, I want to be clear here, is the person who's having a criminal amount of fun at the mid-tables. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, another type you'll see, and this is a, a type I see a lot and I can get a little frustrated playing, is a very bad player with a very strong net list that uses one or two gimmicks out of it. And you're like, oh, I should be able to beat this person, but for whatever reason, your list can't handle the net list. So you just kind of sit there and lose the game. Yes. Um, it is perhaps a little unkind to label someone like this a tryhard, because the reality is they're probably just trying to get better, and one of the ways you can do that is by playing a knit list and learning it and understanding it. Um, But a a player who's playing an army that is above their skill level, so to speak, uh, is something else you will often see pretty often. Um, The good versions of these guys are often going to be kind of struggling to learn the army and making some mistakes that a better player might not, uh, or forgetting about their rules and stuff like this. The bad versions of this player are going to be bragging about how they are the best player at the tournament, even though they're, you know, one and two, um, or complaining about their bad luck or blaming every bad thing that happens on their dice. And This particular player likes to end up at the both the top and bottom of the mid-tables, because you got the ones that are actually, like, pretty decent people pretty good at their game they just have you know lost around or whichever mm-hmm. it's still a net list most people practice against the net lists um so they're they're going to be somewhere in the upper mid table and then you have the people in the lower mid table that are more on the opposite end of that where they don't know the list mechanics that well they're not playing it to its efficacy that it could be playing um and those can be kind of especially if you're playing down to them can be a little bit difficult to play with because sometimes they don't understand their own rules or this or that. They just, you know, copied what they saw on the internet and brought it. Yes. Uh, in both cases with either version of this, um, this can actually be one of your, your better matchups simply because net lists are popular and you probably have read about his army, uh, and know what it is that it does. Yep. Um, so that can be a big advantage, uh, even if you're like, oh no, it is the dreaded whatever list is popular at the moment. Um, but on the other hand, you'll say like, oh, I've, I've already seen 10 battle reports with this, and there was an article talking about how best to beat it, so I know what I'm doing here. Yeah, or alternatively, you practiced with it at home before you came in because you mm-hmm. were expecting to see it, and you know how mm-hmm. your army needs to deal with it. Yes. Another uh, person you will see a lot of at the mid-tables is the casual player. Um, This is someone who came to the tournament and is probably trying to win games, but not trying that hard. Um, They're mostly just there because they want to have a good time with whatever sort of list it is that they bring. Uh, And 
they are maybe the best coping player because they know they're not going to win the tournament and they're just there to kind of enjoy things. Yeah, they're there for either the social interaction, maybe they're there for a painted prize, uh, maybe they're mm-hmm. there just to get drunk with their buddies, I mean, whatever. Yes, you will see a lot of that. Um, by the way, make sure you have consent before you just randomly hug someone. <laughs> Please. Uh, yes, that's a good plan in general. <laughs> yeah, these, these guys are here for a good time, which mm-hmm. I actually enjoy quite a bit. Um, and at the end of the day, like, we're not actually playing for any real amount of prizes or whichever. So other than I, other than, you know, points for the circuit, um, there's not a whole lot of a reason to get, you know, all pent up, whether you, what the difference between first and 32nd place is like they're, uh-huh. they're, they're, they're going to play the game no matter what. Um, and they're going to enjoy some good Warhammer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of these folks are people who are either very dedicated to one army or are most interested in, as Shaylin mentioned, like a painting prize or some other um, non-standard tournament prize. You know, they're they're not they're not trying for the number one spot. They're trying for something else. Yeah, or maybe they're just nostalgic. I mean, hey, and there's nothing wrong with being that kind of player. But you do have to play them at tournaments, and how you approach that game is fundamentally different. Because if you're super competitive and aggressive, you're not going to be a fun opponent for them. And they're not going to have fun with you, and neither of you are going to have a lot of fun that game. So, yeah, turn back at least the tone of your voice. Yeah, uh, the the thing that I would take away from these different kinds of players is it helps a lot to understand why someone is at the tournament. Uh, and we're not suggesting that you put anyone into a box and say, oh, this is just a casual player. Um but if you see someone with a nicely painted army and you, you roll up to the table uh, and they shake your hand, you say hello, and they say, I'm just here to have fun, and it's very clear that that's really all they're interested in doing is they, they want to have a, a fun game, um, you can approach that game in a different way than you would with someone who is maybe attempting to be a top-level competitive player and is doing their best to learn and wants to play a really tight game but may not have developed the skills necessary to ascend to the top tables yet. Yeah. You you should approach those two games in different ways, especially depending on what you yourself are. You, you are presumably one of these types of players. Um so you can you can modify your approach based on who you're playing and and how they are going to respond to different sorts of stuff. Communication 101 yeah. that you got know your audience. So this is one of the things the social contract that the ITC wrote up doesn't cover is uh basically talking to your opponent about what kind of tone you want your game to have. Like, you know, do you want this to be like a game where both of you are in stitches at the end of it because you've been joking around so much? Or is this mm-hmm. a game where it's going to be like, oh, man, I lost, but that was so fun. You know, and I always want my opponent to have a good time because that's I get to be with them for three hours. So we should have a good time together. So mm-hmm. let's figure out what that good time should look like. Yeah. Yeah, I tried tried to set a good tone. Yeah. Everyone wants to come to a tournament and have fun. What fun means for each player is going to be different, but they want to work with you to find what that is, and as long as you're willing to pick up on the cues that they are putting down, you can probably find that. Um, so maybe you you outright ask them, it's like, hey, you know, you do you come you, you trying to win all this or just ask them about their army or what they're there for or whether they come to a lot of tournaments. If they tell you, I've never been to a tournament before, I wanted to see what it was like, that tells you something about what kind of player they are um, and what their goals are probably. Because in all likelihood, someone who's never been to a tournament before is not expecting to win their first tournament, especially if they've already taken one game loss. Yeah, I want to talk about one of my favorite experiences where I was actually playing up, um, where I ran into Brandon Grant at the end of a tournament, and we're both, you know, X and two. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know he started like we we set a really good tone and we started like teaching each other things about our armies and just like going over cool stuff and just having a really good time not really caring who's gonna win what and we're kind of like asking each other questions back and forth and it was a really great learning experience for both of us um and you know i was able actually able to teach brandon things this is right after you know he had he had won the entire itc Mm -hmm. uh and he was able to teach me a bunch of things, obviously. So, you know, what, that's been one of my better experiences. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually worth kind of, like, picking up as a thing here. Um, you will, at the mid-tables, either be in the position to learn a lot if you are playing someone like a, a Brandon Grant or someone who is uh, maybe a little below their, their usual level of play or alternatively teach people a lot of stuff. Uh, If you are finding someone who is playing above their typical level, uh, or if you are playing below your typical level. Um, So if if you want an opportunity to learn these sort of like tips and tricks, um, oh, you you don't actually have to measure the diagonal, you know, you just measure 17 inches out, and then 24 inches off this other edge, and, you, you know, that'll then you draw the line, and that's how you do the thing. It's like all of these weird little things that can make playing a game easier, or features of individual armies. Um, the mid-tables can be a great place to learn those. Yeah, I, I actually had the pleasure of playing the opponent says, I'm not familiar with your army. And I said, I'm not familiar with your army. I said, do you just want to use this as a teaching game? I don't really care who wins the RTT. And he said, yeah. So we spent the entire game talking about how to counter-tactic our own selves. Yeah. Coaching yourself to lose is fantastic. Absolutely. <laughs> and and it is a really good opportunity to learn about different armies because you're going to see a lot of different types of armies at the mid-tables. In fact, the mid-tables are arguably where you see some of the most unusual armies at a tournament. Uh, Let's go six for six raised eyebrows, because I brought Grey Knights to the table. Right? You will see people bringing factions that you probably don't encounter very often. Um you will see people bringing very odd lists either because they think they are good or because they just want to try something out or just because they thought the army was funny. Or the model was super cool. I brought a Stompa. Stompas weren't good at this point. I don't care. I brought my Stompa. It doesn't matter. I didn't bring the Stompa because I thought it was good. I brought the Stompa because it was a Stompa. (laughs) So, because I wanted to. Exactly. Yeah. and then things don't need to be on meta, and there's plenty of players who do perfectly fine with with subpar or, you know, less efficient lists, I should say. Yes. So you will see a number of unusual types of lists at the mid-tier. Um, we kind of already met, talked about the, the gimmick list. Um, this, yes. this is probably your Stompa list, or this is the guy who just really wanted to see what happens when you bring 11 Dreadnoughts, or... Yeah. Whatever other strange kind of uh, conceptual army, um, you will see a lot of these. Either, again, because they just wanted it for a laugh, or because they thought it might be good. Um, But these armies show up a lot at the mid-tables. This is the home of skewed lists, where there's where a yeah. lot of times um, someone's going to play up to a certain skew of something, whether like you know eighteen of you know one particular unit, you know a three by six uh, with with rule of three or mm-hmm. something crazy, um, where it's going to have a great matchup a lot of the time, but they're going to run into you know a couple opponents that do beat them and they end up living in the parking lot guard list. Sure, or horde armies that flood the table with no. 290 Gretchen. Uh, these can come in almost any variety, but again, they're gimmick lists. They, they have one thing that they are trying to do, and if that works, they win, and if it doesn't work, they lose. We've, we've talked about these armies in the past. Uh, all of the advice there applies, but the mid-tables is really where you see these. You don't see them at the top tables because they tend to lose to something. Yeah. Um, the other thing you will see is lists that are from when the like six months delayed like oh yeah that list was really good and hot before the last faq 
Right. Uh, a, an example of this might be a player who is bringing, I don't know, Broviathan lists today in 2021. Um, that list was good at one point. It is no longer particularly good. Um, but that doesn't mean people will necessarily stop playing. Hobby lag is very real. Yeah. And you'll also see things that are just like, uh, this is the army of models I had. <laughs> yes, uh, the the collection of what a player owns or likes is uh, pretty common. Um, in fact, that I would argue that at mid-tables that is one of the most common lists, um, is, is players who do not have an infinite collection are kind of just working off of like, well, yeah, I know that, I know that, buggies are not great right now, but I didn't have anything else to fill my fast attack slots, and I needed to make 2,000 points, and they're better than the other things I have. It's one I had painted, or it's what I could borrow. Exactly. You will see yeah. a fair amount of that. Almost optimized lists. <laughs> lists that are partial. I, I would say lists that are partially optimized. Yeah, in line with the gimmicks, you also have the lists that are that are meta, but they're kind of recognized as your overall gatekeepers. Yes. Um, yeah. Your the a lot of these are net lists somewhat, but they're they're lists that are recognized for having usually some sort of weakness or bad matchup where they're not going to truly go six zero all the time, even in the hands of a very good player. Yes. A list that will put you at the upper mid tables reliably. And they're often simple to play. Yeah, stuff like knights, uh, any kind of list that is fielding single really big threats uh, often fall into this category. Um, or uh, lists that are very good and meta, except just have like one or two just abysmal matchups. Um, where they cannot beat one or more of the current meta lists, uh, they will often fall into this category. It's like, I do really, really well unless my opponent plays White Scars, and then I just lose. And it's like, well, White Scars are popular and good, so... <laughs> Here's White Scars, and they're all over the place. Yeah. Or it's like, it's like, oh, my army gets countered by Hordes. It's like, well, you ran into, you know, a good chunk of Horde players. Oops. Yes. Yeah. Uh... Similarly, you will have uh, players who are bringing an, an attempt at countering the meta um, that either did not work out the way they wanted, or maybe just misread the meta, or is maybe not sufficiently finely tuned. Um, or honestly, they just played mid table other mid table players who yep. weren't exactly <laughs> yes uh, weren't exactly playing the meta, and they ran into other gimmicks and other lists trying to do the same thing. Um, really, really awkward when that happens. Uh, and yes. hilarious, it can be hilarious. Yeah, uh, the big takeaway from all of this is that you are going to see a lot of weird lists. So if you are a mid table player one of the things you want to be prepared for is you need to be ready to face lots of different armies. Not just the good armies, but also the bad armies. Oh, on that note, another thing you should do is take these lists home with you and really look at them. Sometimes you can sure. find the kernels of really excellent ideas that your opponent may not be where they stumbled onto. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you, you find yourself getting beat up by one of these armies and you don't really understand why, it's like, man, his Wraith Guard were just taking me apart. You, you have access to that list, you have access to that codex, uh, you probably have friends who play that codex that you can talk about it with, you can talk about the play, with the player themselves after the tournament, say like, hey, I want to, like, ping you on, on Facebook Messenger after all this is over, or on Discord, or whatever you may use, uh, and and find out, like, how you came to this list, because it was really beating my face in, and I want to understand why, and why you made the choices you did. Um, this is a fantastic opportunity to advance your list-building tech. Yeah. Um, the other thing about mid-tables is, because we have a wide range of player types... Getting to turn five doesn't happen very frequently. I'm going to be realistic. Yeah. There. 
Um, the unfortunate reality of most tournaments is that um, even with chess clocks or other measures in place, a lot of players don't finish their games. That is not nearly as true as it was during 8th edition, um, but it still will happen. And mid-tables are where you really do need to be watching your time limit. We've talked in the past about some strategies you can use to kind of track your time and, and plot it out and make sure that you are getting through your game, but you really, really do want to watch your own time, and I strongly suggest you do play with a chess clock, even if you don't abide absolutely by it. You, you can... You can essentially give your opponent some of your time if you want um, so that they don't time out and auto lose the game. Yeah. But you really want to have that option because one of the worst feelings you can have is your opponent taking an hour and a half or two hours on turn one and you basically not getting to play the game. And that will happen at the mid tables. It's, it's, yeah. it, it's an unfortunate thing, but it is real. You know, the, the thing that with the whole setting the tone and communication situation is a lot of times, especially toward the end of a tournament, like not when I'm one and two, but I'm saying, saying like two and two or two and three for some, you know, god awful reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, the first thing I introduce is like, hey, do you want to play the chess clock? Um, and if, you know, it's a yes, then cool. We're going to do the typical chess clock thing. It's good practice. Always practice your timekeeping. But at that level, if someone says no and they come with like a more casual, let's have fun approach, I'll throw the chess, the chess clock, chess clock back in my backpack and just not care. Um, and then, then that game will go to turn three and I'll be like, oh, well. Um, but yeah, you, you're going to run into issues of not getting through the time limits, especially if you choose to put away the chess clock at that level. Yeah. I, I like to use a chess clock even when my opponent is maybe not real into it. There are times when you just, you, I would say it is certainly better not to use it. But usually I'll just say like, hey, I would like to play with a chess clock. Uh, regardless of what table I'm at and, and how I'm doing. Uh, because I find it, it is good practice and it helps keep people aware of the time. Um, yes. Even if you're not, like, if your opponent says, oh, I don't like using a chess clock, then I'll just say, that's fine, I'll keep track of it, and, you know, we won't, you, you don't have to abide by it, but I like to have it active for doing things. Um, yeah, I, I usually say, personally, um, I just like to use it to time myself. Sure. Um, because if, if someone sees that, like, you guys are two hours into the game and you've only played for 25 minutes, um, they will. there's a good chance they will self-regulate to some degree and, and realize, like, oh, I'm the one taking all the time in this game. Um, and, and there are some ways that you can kind of push that a little bit. It's like, hey, I want to try and finish this game. Do you mind if we speed it up a little bit? Um, because most people do want to finish the game, but it, it helps provide that little bit of extra information where people are not as bound by their own sense of how much time things are taking because the game will mess that up. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, I've had some opponents insist on it that I play the chess clock, and then yeah. they're like, hey, I super need to practice at it. And they end up timing out. And I'm like, well, you know, depending on how the game's going, like, I'll, I'll sometimes even let them use some of my time just because yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, well, we're not going to, like, 100% go by it especially since you're using this as a learning experience i'm not going to punish you um 100 especially if you're you know if if you're really trying like here you know help people out if you can and, and to be clear that is 100 legal as yeah. long as you still have sufficient time on the clock for the game not to go out you can let your opponent use your time because it is always your discretion whether or not to switch the timer over yes and you know, this goes back to just not being a jerk. <laughs> yeah. It's, again, you're at the mid-tables. Neither of you is going to win anything. Try to make it a good game experience for you both. Doesn't mean let your opponent win, but it probably does mean let them play the game. Yes. So, let's go ahead and take a little break, and when we come back, we will talk about some of the more social and mental aspects of the game. And 
back and ready to talk more about playing at the mid-table. Specifically, how you should approach playing at the mid-tables. Because I think there are some, as we kind of talked a little about earlier, social aspects of this where you can really make your games go a lot better just by virtue of the way you communicate with them. Yes. So here's a facet of mid-table play is your opponent is likely to know the rules of their army but not know the rules of your army because learning other armies is a skill and not everyone picks that up right away. So yeah. they'll get gotcha by basic rules in your army because they have no idea they're there. And good communication can make that a whole lot less of a sour experience for them. Yeah, if you see your opponent like walking into an obvious mistake with your army, um, if you're at the mid-tables, it, it can often be very valuable to, to say, like, hey, do you know I have this special rule? And if they say, yeah, yeah, then it's like, okay, well, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And if they're like, oh, wait, what does that do? take a second to explain it to him, probably means they'll they'll change what they're doing. And does this hurt your gameplay? Yeah, technically, but again, like, neither of you are going to win the tournament. Um, making it a positive social experience for both of you and, and not doing these, aha, but you forgot about my thing kind of moments is going to improve not only your skills as a player, but also your opponent's opinion of you and their feeling of the community and their likelihood to come back to a tournament. Yeah, like letting them know that you have specific stratagems and such like that that completely, like, you know, dump on them or they forgot that you have a specific aura or relic that they're just, like, running straight into and you're like, you do know this guy does this, right? And, like, just making that making that very clear where you don't let people make obvious mistakes all the time. Yes, and also... The art of the take backsee. My pro my thing on that is, yes. If they're newer, casual, and and they're clearly someone who needs take backsees to have a better gaming experience, I will let them have them. I personally don't take mm -hmm. them because I'm practicing not to take them, but mm -hmm. I extend that courtesy because it's not really. It's technically harming my game a little bit, but it's making their enjoyment go up by like thirty percent. So what do I care? Yeah, and it's simulating a more accurate player, anyways. Yes, and and whether or not you take them and whether or not you give them, um, people have argued about that for hours. We're not going to relitigate that whole thing here, um, but I will definitely say that there's a lot of benefit to giving your opponent takebacks, um, and if you give your opponent them, they're more likely to let you get them. So, in general, just sort of be generous there. Um, when it comes to telling your opponent about special rules and making mistakes and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and don't forget to always double-check what your opponent's doing so you don't do the same. Like, sure. you can feel free to ask questions. This is the perfect time to ask questions, especially if you're playing up. Um, you don't yes. want to just, you know, 100% get stomped on. You're like, oh, well, you know, how does this work or what does this do? Like, there are some interactions that are, like, three layers deep, and you're like, well, how exactly does this entire wombo combo work? Um, and you can finally have it explained to you and shown on the table, especially if you haven't experienced it yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, and just in even in a broader sense, good communication and saying, like, hey, I am 23.5 inches away from you. I think that means that even with a full advance and maximum charge roll, I am out of your range. Does that sound correct to you? And if your opponent says, like, uh, yeah, no, I don't have any way to get to that, then you're cool. You, you solved the problem with five seconds of speaking. Yeah. And if they're like, well, that doesn't look like 23 inches to me, or maybe, you know, oh, actually I have a stratagem that gives me plus four inches movement or whatever it may be, then you don't get gotcha. Uh, gotchas are absolutely something that works both ways. And, and that level of communication where you're being explicit what's going on makes a huge difference. Yeah, I'm really huge with rule of intent. Um, I declare my intent all the time. And I'm like, hey, does this look like this? I'd like to do this. And I state it very explicitly 
Um, and, and I've had opponents be like, oh, that doesn't, you know, oh, they're they're at 12.1 inches. You can't do that. I'm just like, but I declared they should be within 12. I have the movement to be 12. Like, you you can definitely clear some stuff up, especially on those, like, minor, minor, er- you know, table errors. Yeah. Yes. I, I've discovered that talking it out in advance saves you a lot of headaches later. If anything, over-communicating is is definitely the way to lean because your opponent can always tell you to shut up. Mm-hmm. Now, on a cool habit situation, this develops that behavior in others where they see it works well and everybody has a better time. Um, I overall want more communicative opponents, period, in yep. all of 40k. Um, and if you can teach that and start pushing that out more and making people have better games um, more people will do it and more people will have better games so just kind of it's a really good habit to build and help others build mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well let's go ahead and take that into from the the social game into the mental game um because that's this is actually another really important part of things we've talked about it a lot in the past the mental game is a huge part of being able to win. Um, and even if you are not necessarily uh, coming into a tournament expecting to win the tournament, you can improve your ability to win future tournaments. In fact, that's kind of what you should be playing for. Yeah, the the thing about the mental game is, you know, at the end of the day, we can always, always say stay positive, but it's just how exactly do you accomplish that? Um, you want to come in with a winning attitude. You want to come in, you know, and do the best you can. But what exactly is that? Um, we've all, you know, suffered the tilt. Uh, my worst experiences are always my first game at mid table because I go into a tournament expecting to win or expecting mm-hmm. to do incredibly well. Um, and like I'll have a really tight game ex- against a really great player, and like either something will go sideways or you know whichever. Um, I don't ever want to blame dice or anything like that. But like crazy things can happen and then suddenly you're just dejected and you're starting the next round and you're just in that sour mood because you had that expectation of going so far yeah and and your mental approach to the game can be really big and one of the best things you can train yourself on aside of what we've already talked about where you're say learning enemy the the other armies and that sort of thing is training your mental game um, because that is an enormous part of those people who are able to get to the top tables, is being able to stay in the game even when bad things have happened, either during that game or in a previous round. I've, I've absolutely lost games just because I was in a bad mood because I had done really poorly the game before. And there's no reason to give yourself two losses like that. So, uh, another thing that you can uh, potentially get a lot out of when you are looking at your, your mid-table games uh, is the the learning experiences. Like, oh, I've never run into that before, or I've never had to deal with that situation before. Um, you are going to get in a lot of weird situations at these mid-table games because the dice are strange, the armies are strange, there's a wide variety of players... So, taking away a learning experience, and and not just, like, having it be something where, you know, I won or lost this game, but I learned something that I can use to win future games, or avoid losing them, or come up with a new strategy, or a new army, that can be an extremely valuable part of these sorts of games. And that is the sort of thing you should have your eyes open for. Is if, if you're seeing unusual units, if you're seeing unusual gameplay stuff, talk to your opponent about them after the game is over. Um, maybe don't try and talk to them during the game. That's that They're probably not going to tell you what their strategy <laughs> is as they're doing it to you. But after the game is over, talk to them about what they did and why and why it may have worked, especially if you lost. Yeah, that that post-game chat is always really helpful, really good, and sometimes that post-game chat doesn't happen because the game can get sour, and I just want to touch on sometimes those learning experiences can be negative. Sometimes you learn that some players just aren't that fun to play, um, and you're going to learn to avoid those players or learn how you're going to have to interact with them because they're going to be around. Yes. Uh 
a good resource here is your team, because if you're really tilted from a bad player experience, having people remind you there's good in the world is very helpful. Yeah, and, and they can help you contextualize what happened, ask questions that you may not have considered. It's like, well, you know, don't you have that strategy? And then you're like, oh, I had that strategy. Um, those, those are things that can help you recontextualize the loss so it's not just, I lost the game because of dice or whatever. You can look at what actually caused you to lose the game and understand what you could have done differently. Yeah, I've, uh, I touched on uh, what you call it, um, rule of intent earlier, where I've had a player yep. completely flip on me, and like you know, I've called more judges and had more disputes at mid tables than I have anywhere else. Yeah. Like, so the, the, it, it it can get contentious. So mm-hmm. um, you you'll learn. Uh, it's one of those things you will learn. But like I've had a player go from like joyful, good mood to like suddenly gotching me. And using like what what's on the table as the, as the issue, and just it we, when we start arguing, it it can get rough. Just understand that you're going to run into those people too, and it's going to be an experience. Yeah, and definitely on that note, um, if you were at the mid tables and you were one of these players, you know, again by definition, you're not one of the top players around. Be ready to be wrong. Um, come into that game with the understanding that you may not know all the rules and you may not know how all the rules interact with each other. So if someone tells you, no, it works like this, and you're like, well, that's not how I've played it, you need to be sort of in the back of your mind remembering, just because you've played it that way doesn't mean that's the right way. Um, You could very well be wrong about that. And if a judge comes over and does rule against you, you just need to accept that. Um, It's not easy to do, but you're not the best player at the tournament, by definition. Um, you, you need to be prepared to be wrong, as unpleasant as that can be. Yes. Um, and also, even if you're losing, very clearly losing, mm-hmm. one of the best ways I've learned and still had a good experience was grabbing what points I could. Because yes. it turns out uh, having like two more points than someone else actually affects your mid-table ranking pretty hard. So grabbing at points, even when you're losing, is still worth doing. And like as I as I like to say, it's like I don't lose hard. I just it's like I lose, mm-hmm. but I don't lose hard. And that's a mm-hmm. very distinct difference in skill. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a lot of enjoyment when you look at your score and you realize that you're have the same score as somebody who's five and one as far as battle points go, and you're like, wow, mm-hmm. I. I played some fantastic games. I didn't win, but I still scored a crap ton of points. Mm-hmm. And and beyond just the sort of mental satisfaction of that, that can actually affect your ranking in the tournament. That can affect whether or not you win best in faction, if that's something you're trying for. Uh, it can affect a lot of other stuff. It'll affect your future matchups in that tournament. Um you absolutely should be trying to play your games to the end and get every point you can. That doesn't mean being a dick about it. We, we are never going to recommend that. But you definitely want to try and like, oh, I can get three more points by killing this character, so I'm going to try and kill them. Um, you want to scrape out every point you can because that will affect everything else we just talked about. It also might even mean you win a game you didn't think you were going to. Luck can go all kinds of ways. I've seen that flip against me and flip for me when I'm like, nah, dude, let's just play it out. We got two more hours. We'll just play it out. We'll see what happens. And I lose the game because I made my opponent do that. I've had some opponents that, you know, they're like, hey, you know, you've obviously won this, but I want to do like, let's let's, let's put down the score, record the game, but... I want to try this thing and we'll like reset the board, replay turn one or do something. There's, there's other things you can do with that three hour time block you have. Yeah. Um, when you are in that position of like, neither of you are going to win the game that gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, we're not saying that you should be colluding with your opponent to make sure that so-and-so gets X points or anything like that. What we're talking about is I want to see what happens if I run, 10 Terminators into five squads of Orc Boys. I want to see who wins that fight. Or maybe you're you're thinking, like, I don't know, can my HQ solo your knight? Let's find out. 
Or maybe I could have tried deep striking in over here, and that would have changed the whole game. Do you mind if we try that as a thought exercise after you've already won? Yeah, there's these really cool tournaments where they have these side objectives you need to accomplish during the tournament, like mm-hmm. like killing your killing your opponent's HQ and stuff like that. The once once the game's kind of been decided, so on and so forth. Those objectives are a lot of fun, especially oh, yeah. at mid tables. Yes, um, this these those objectives are in fact often very specifically pointed at the players in the mid tables. Uh, because they are the ones who are can be just sort of like, well, I don't actually care if I win this game, but I do want to have my HQ survive with just one wound left on an objective. Yeah, um, that was actually the first tournament prize I got was an achievement prize for winning all sorts of weird mid-table prizes. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing can be a really good time. Um, and if those don't explicitly exist in the tournament, you can make them for yourself. You can say, like, I'm a Kilmortarian! That actually is uh, kind of a good transition into our next thing, is setting goals. Because if you are a mid-table player, again, you're not going to win the tournament. No. You also probably want to avoid being the wooden spoon prize last place in the tournament. Um, which means you're going to fall somewhere in the middle. What that means for you is that you should have some kind of goal for the tournament. That goal might be score in the top 20. That goal might be, I want to be the best Drukari player here. That goal might be, I want to score at least 50 points every game. Or it might be weirder than that. I I want to get a Facebook contact from every game I play. Uh, I want to join a team. I don't care which team as long as it's a team. But having some kind of goal gives you something to work towards. Maybe you don't make that goal. Maybe you do. But Mm -hmm. it gives you something concrete you can work on because the goal of, I want to win the tournament, you're not going to do that easily. Everyone wants to win the tournament. And there's only one tournament winner. Something smaller. Yes. So have something else you're aiming for. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try and win the tournament. You probably won't, but you may as well still try. But have something else that is your your real goal in this situation. Yeah, for me, I call these day two goals, where if you're going into day two of a GT event and you're like one and two or something, um, you gotta kind of get yourself pumped up, going back to the mental game to like mm-hmm. continue, you know, to, to get through those three games, especially if you want to win. Uh, so I, I typically give myself some sort of some sort of goal or some sort of uh, you know data analysis analytical thing to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. It can be as broad or as specific or as big or as small. If, if you walk into day two with a, a two-and-one record and you tell yourself, I want to win all three games here because that's my goal, that's great. I mean, that's probably something that is above a mid-table player, but it, that can still be your goal. And then you can look at, why didn't I win those games? And why didn't I manage to do things? Uh, on the other hand, your goal might be completely different. It might be... Uh, I want to share a beer with every one of the, the people I play after a game. That's a perfectly good goal, too, because building that community and getting in with those players and becoming known to the people in your tournament scene has a lot of value. That That is not just a, like, goofy, let's-have-fun kind of goal. That's something that can very much improve your game in a real way. Yeah, traveling around, not only with just your friends and building your own team, but just like just the general experience of meeting all these people that you may have heard about, especially if you're, you know, traveling to new areas or going to new tournaments you haven't been to before. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. you're so-and-so. And I've had mm-hmm. that pulled on me by people I don't even know. They're just like, oh, you're you're Ben. And I'm like, hey, cool. And like, we we commiserate and everything's good. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic experience to have that done to you and to do to others. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I mean, like, when people see Grey Knights, I get a lot of million questions, at least back when they were bad. Right. Well, and even now, they're still not a common army. No. <laughs> yeah, you you can have a lot to talk about, and a, you will meet a lot of people going to these tournaments. Making those connections and becoming that part of that community it can be one of the best reasons to go to tournaments. 
And even if you never win a single tournament, if you show up to them and talk to people and make friends and, and chat about the game you like with those people, they're going to get to know you and you're going to become a part of that tournament scene. Uh, there are absolutely people I know who go to every tournament in the, the whole of the, the Northwest where we live, and I see them at every tournament, and they never win a single tournament, but I'm always glad to see them there, because they're a great player to play against, and they're part of the tournaments that I go to. They're, they're just one of the things that are there. Yeah. And if they're not, then everyone kind of asks, like, hey, why is so-and-so not here? Um, because we all know who that is, even though they've never won any tournaments, in some cases, barely even won any games. Yeah. Yeah, outside the tournament, there's actually more to going to a 40k event in a GT than just the tournament. One of my favorite things is the post, you know, post day one or post day two dinner. Oh, those yeah. Those are fantastic. I love those. Those are so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my personal favorite is uh, when you become a known enough player where, like, the new guy, it's like, all right, you brought demons. Hopefully you don't get played against Shaylin. She'll kick your ass, and I'm sorry in advance, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, there is, there's so much to be said about the social aspect of this game that we really can't fit it into this, but approaching it from that perspective of it doesn't actually matter whether I win or lose this game, what I'm getting out of it is the context that people will put me into, the way they see me, the who, them knowing who I am, all of that has a ton of value. Um, because that, that can be a way for you to get onto teams, that can be a way for you to make contacts who may know things that you don't, that is a way for you to have players in various areas that maybe you can crash at their place, or maybe they can give you info, or talk about lists that they are trying out, or all of these sorts of things. Um, these are all extremely valuable for someone who is looking purely from a competitive perspective to say nothing of the the human aspect of what you can gain from that as a person. Yeah, and that's a huge reason why I go to tournaments is the social aspect. It's a controlled social experience, which is really good for autistic people. Yeah, uh, and, and for, I would say, anyone, like, it's a way to make friends. That's not easy to do when you're creaky old bones like us. Uh, but but it is a shared context that you can make friends and interact with them in a very positive way if you choose to take that. It's almost like we have a community of some sort. Yeah, like a community. <laughs> is this a transition statement? I think it's the end of the episode is what it is. <laughs> uh, unless either of you have any final thoughts to add to our little round table on this. Mid tables are fun. They absolutely can be. When 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 you find yourself at the mid table, again, don't take it as an insult because that just makes you like most people. You can absolutely still play the game. You can absolutely still play the game competitively. You can play fun games. You can meet a lot of people. There is a lot to be gained from the mid tables. Whether you are an average player, an above average player, or a below average player. There's a lot to glean. Take advantage of it. Yeah. So, if you have any questions about this episode, or you would like to talk about us with your own experiences, being a mid-table player, or maybe you're looking for list advice because you want to move beyond the mid-tables, or just about anything else, you can contact us at inthefinesthour at gmail.com or through Facebook, where we are also in the finest hour. Uh, and if you would like to support us, because you really like what we're doing here, for $5 a month you can join our Patreon, and that will get you access to our private Facebook group, as well as our Discord server, where we talk and post dumb lists and complain about Space Marines and all the other things that folks do. So, thank you very much to all of our Patreons, we really appreciate all that you've done for us, and you are what helps keep this show running, because without you, we would not have the equipment we need to do this, nor the web hosting, nor anything else. So thank you very much. 
I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow for being an artistic badass, producing some mm-hmm. of the best 40k art I have ever seen, including our logos. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram, and I think DeviantArt as well. Yep. And speaking of art, if you enjoyed the art of sound that we have at the beginning and intermission of our show, you can find Dank Muse's work at YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. All right, I think that wraps us up for the week. So, next week we will be talking about bad matchups, how to identify them, and how to deal with them. But until then, I have been Sean Morgan, Shailen Allen West, Ben Jerry. Thanks for listening.